Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, coming at you from Eureka, California, joined as usual by Michael O'Neill in Syracuse, New York. Howdy, Michael. Hey, David. So, you know, we've got a really great program lined up for y'all today. Before we jump into it, a reminder to you, uh, if you are watching live on Facebook, make sure to share this on your own page or any page that you manage. Uh, If you are not watching live, you can still share this on your own Facebook page. And regardless, whatever platform, uh, podcast, uh, live stream, any other way you're watching it, you can always go to the website, agreenwayforward.org, download this, share it across multiple platforms. Today, we're going to be diving right into facial recognition. What is it? Why you should be terrified of it and what you can do about it. Michael, I'm going to kick this over to you because your good buddy, Ron Placone, turned us on to this. That's right. Uh, So friend of the show, Ron Placone, uh, who we've had on uh, both to talk about uh, his work in general, but also uh, the campaign work he's done with Fight for the Future, most recently with the uh, Save the Internet campaign, uh, connected me to Evan. And I want to welcome Evan Greer from Fight for the Future here on A Green Way Forward right now. Uh, Evan, I had the fortune of appearing on the Epic live stream that you uh, emceed, uh, hosted for all of that time, and uh, we're really happy to have you on our show now uh, in your capacity as Deputy Director of Fight for the Future, the uh, mastermind behind uh, campaigns and communications for that organization. And uh, I... I'm really fascinated by uh, your background as a creator, as a musician, as a writer, as a songwriter, and as the deputy director for this fantastic tech justice-oriented organization. Uh, Evan, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came uh, to uh, work in this vein of the movement? Yeah, for sure. And and thanks so much, guys, for having me on and and for all the work that you do. you know, I took a little bit of a roundabout path to, to getting into this internet freedom work. You know, I was not uh, a digital activist. I didn't know anything about SOPA or PIPA or net neutrality or any of those other acronyms uh, related to kind of internet policy. Uh, I actually dropped out of college and, and toured full-time as a professional musician for about 10 years. Um, and so, you know, I kind of toured around North America and Europe playing poppy, queer, anti-capitalist, transgender folk music for a living, quote unquote, Uh, maxed out a couple of credit cards, had a kid, needed a real job, um, if you will, and stumbled upon Fight for the Future instead. Um, And so it's really been a process of kind of applying a lot of the things that I learned as as a musician and as an activist and kind of running my own independent um, arts business, essentially, um, and applying that to... Um, reaching people using creativity and strategy on the internet. And so, you know, in my music career, I would often reach dozens or hundreds, or if I was really lucky, maybe thousands of people. Um, But, you know, now like using websites, using uh, video, using um, the internet to harness uh, that power to reach so many people, we can reach hundreds or millions um, or even hundreds of millions or billions of people and mobilize them to take action about the things that matter to them. Um, and, you know, I still play music. I put out an album called She, Her, They, Them earlier this year. Um, but I always kind of have been, you know, throughout my entire career, I've always balanced music uh, with activism. Uh, you know, even as I was touring, I would always do workshops and trainings for college students and unions and 
environmental groups and, and many others and helped find, found Rising Tide North America, did a lot of political prisoner work, uh, various different things along the way. But for me, you know, this battle that we're in over technology and whether technology is largely going to be used to enhance and protect our rights or to decimate and trample our rights uh, feels like a battlefield worth fighting on. And that's kind of what gets me out of bed every day. So what I'm hearing, Evan, is that in your own life, you have been able to harness a, a free and, and open Internet to the extent that we have one in, uh, to uh, create and, and publish your music and your creations and, and also to seek out community and to, uh, to help uh, build communities around uh, justice. And that, that's the kind of Internet that you want to defend and that fight for the future is trying to defend. And can you tell us a little bit more about fight for the future as an organization and a little bit of its history and, and what its orientation is towards having a more free, more fair, more open internet and how that relates to the rest of society? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like, you know, as the internet has grown up, we've started to see the the dark sides of it or kind of the seedy underbelly of it. Um, but I do think it's important to just remember like how freaking awesome the internet is um, and the like incredibly powerful ways that it's transformed our society uh, and particularly the ways that it's changed the rules for what is and isn't possible uh, within a deeply broken political system. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely ways that the internet enables um those with power to maintain their power. Um, but I think on balance, uh, it largely benefits those without power um, who are resisting the status quo and who are trying to change things. Um, and for me as a musician, I mean, I really saw that, you know, uh, I was part of a group called the Riot Folk Collective. We were a worker-owned collective cooperative of musicians that was basically an alternative to a record label. Um, and way back, you know, in the days before Napster, we were some of the first artists to start putting our music online for free. Um, and we would just host MP3s and waves on archive.org and people could go download it and donate to us. Um, and, you know, we really saw that there was like a different model. There were other ways of supporting ourselves as artists and creators rather than depending on corporate record labels and licensing deals and the kind of traditional hyper-capitalist route of turning our music and our art into a commodity. Um, and so for me, you know, again, I, I really see the power of that. Like it, it allowed me as a queer, uh, fringe political artist um, to build an audience. And, you know, I remember like showing up in, you know, my first tour of Europe and showing up in like Prague in some like underground record store. And there's like a hundred kids that know all the words to all of my songs. Um, and that's only because of the internet. You know, I never, I didn't sell a single one of them a CD or an album or, or whatever, you know, but they were able to connect with this thing that I was creating um, thanks to this platform and this technology. And I think we're seeing an explosion of um, art made by women and queer folks and people of color um, getting recognition and building an audience in a way that we weren't able to when the gatekeepers of what was cool were essentially like five record labels and a handful of writers that write for like Rolling Stone and Billboard. And if you couldn't make friends with them, you know, you had no voice. And so I think you know, while there's real challenges that the internet presents, um, and while it enables, you know, again, you know, there's, there's definitely ways that it can exacerbate existing forms of oppression or discrimination within our society. Um, but for me, you know, 
I, I have to remember just the power of it um, and my ability to connect with other people that share my experiences um, or to think about, you know, the like, I get messages all the time from especially young trans women um, who live in like rural areas, you know, someone in like Arkansas who are like, you know what, I didn't know there was anyone else like me until I found one of your YouTube videos. And, you know, now I like I'm connected and I know that there's this community. Um, and so I just think it's so powerful that we have this platform to use. Um, but the reality is that the, it's not guaranteed. Um, and, you know, there, the internet that we know and love is kind of, it, it's not just going to die overnight. I think we often, you know, maybe we've shared a meme or seen something on Facebook or Twitter that's like, the internet is dying or, you know, the, like, you know, this is the end as we know it. And, you know, there's a degree to which that's true, but I think we need to recognize that these are things that happen over time. And what I would argue is that the internet is, is more like slowly rotting or the internet is very sick. And if we don't take action now to preserve the things that we love about it and to fight for the internet that we want to have, then we're going to have an internet that looks a lot more like cable TV, where the only voices that we hear are voices that are backed up by money. Well, um, and so for David and I, as, as nonviolent eco-socialist revolutionaries, and I'm going to throw to you in just a moment, David, um, we, uh, we have a live stream that, that's on Facebook, right? And so we recognize the tension in that and the, that tension that always exists within the Internet uh, as something that in part came out of a nuclear war defense strategy, right? And, and has these oligarchic tech companies in it. Um, so we, we recognize that tension and that, you know, we have to fight um, to preserve those elements, like you said, that we cherish while also understanding that there's a that we exist within a, a larger capitalist oppressive uh, system. And so, David, I, I wanted to throw to you uh, for uh, what you wanted to add. Well, thank you, Evan. You've certainly said a lot and shared a lot. Uh, and I'm going to resist uh, going deep on transgendered folk music because that uh, intrigued the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> actually, I'm going to ask you, like for somebody who is only mildly familiar with the concept of facial recognition and is mostly just sort of curious about it. Uh, I know that one of the projects Fight for the Future is working on is banned facial recognition, uh, not regulated, but actually ban it. So y'all got some pretty strong opinions. So I'm just going to ask you first, tell us really what is facial recognition and why is it something that an ordinary person ought to care so strongly about? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, we're, we're definitely not known for not having strong opinions over here at Fight for the Future. So you got that right. And and yeah, quickly, and, and to answer your question, your previous question, you know, just quickly, I'll say Fight for the Future, we're a nonprofit, and we work on broadly on issues of human rights and free expression as they relate to the internet. Um, so most folks probably know us best for helping organize the huge online protests around SOPA and PIPA. Uh, copyright legislation that could have led to widespread internet censorship. Um, so folks remember when Wikipedia and other major websites blacked out and we collectively drove more than 8 million phone calls to Congress in a single day. Those are the types of actions that we take. That's what we mean when we say we're kind of harnessing the power of the internet to mobilize people on a scale that was previously thought to be impossible uh, and essentially hack the political system, get around the corporate money and power and lobbying to actually make ordinary people's voices heard in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so, yeah, to answer your question, David, our latest campaign is around facial recognition surveillance. And facial recognition is a form of biometric surveillance. Uh, and, and really, it's 
unlike any other type of government surveillance that we've ever dealt with. You know, folks, your folks who are out there watching are probably familiar with, um, you know, the NSA's programs that were exposed by Edward Snowden, um, where the U.S. government has been collecting, monitoring uh, huge amounts of information collected through our phones and computers, uh, collecting call records of every American citizen as well as non-citizens. Um, these are all ways that the U.S. government can build profiles on people, can essentially monitor our associations, where we go to, you know, our places of worship, who we know, what we do, what we say, what we think. Um, and that's incredibly dangerous. It has a profoundly chilling effect on free expression and our ability to mobilize when there aren't spaces that are free from this type of government intrusion. But facial recognition specifically uh, takes that to a whole nother level. So you imagine, you know, there's security cameras, there's photographs that we've uploaded to the internet. There's this huge trove of data of our faces that exist out there in the world. But currently, without facial recognition, if law enforcement wants to use that information, they have to dedicate some resources to it. So if the cops or the FBI or whoever is, you know, they're interested in you, David Cobb, and they think you might have done something wrong, they got to put some people on it and spend some money to go look through, you know, databases to go kind of look at that information and say, oh, does this person's face match, uh, you know, this video we have of a crime being committed or whatever. Now, if you put a computer to that task and you use an algorithm to rapidly match uh, faces against these massive databases in real time, that allows the U.S. government or any government uh, to essentially monitor who we are, where we go at all times, no matter what. You know, you can leave your home without your phone, but you can't leave your home without your face. And so this type of technology uh, is deeply invasive. And it essentially, you know, if it's taken to its kind of final conclusion, it creates a world with exact with zero space that's free from government intrusion. Um, and I think that that's profoundly dangerous for a wide variety of reasons. I mean, there's sort of the obvious immediate reasons, which is that it's going to exacerbate existing forms of discrimination within our society. Uh, you know, this is going to land more people of color in prison. It's going to crack down on dissent. It's going to have a chilling effect on free expression. But I think, you know, we often think of privacy as what do we have to hide? And I think it's so important that we think of privacy as our ability to progress as a human society. And if you think 50 years ago in this country, homosexuality was still criminalized in the majority of states in the country. If the U.S. government had facial recognition surveillance technology 50 years ago, would the Stonewall Rebellion have ever happened? Would the LGBTQ rights movement have ever formed? If the U.S. government had the ability to perfectly police all forms of deviation from what's seen as the status quo or accepted, then there's really no room to progress. There's no room to test those laws and determine, are they correct? You know, we're having a national conversation now about the criminalization of marijuana. If the U.S. government had facial recognition surveillance and could essentially incarcerate every single person that ever sold a bag of weed or smoked on the street, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation because it's a foregone conclusion. So I think that's, it's so important that we look at this not just as an issue of privacy, but as an issue of basic freedom and liberty and progress. Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. We're being joined by Evan Greer of Fight for the Future. Uh, 
Evan, Michael writes in to ask, if a government wanted to track us, would it be more efficient to just track our cell phone movements and see which other cell phones were in the same area? It seems like that would be a more accurate and effective way rather than facial recognition. What would you say to Michael A.? Sure. So this is a great question, Michael. And you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, that is something that is happening. Um, you know, the big telecom companies like T-Mobile and Comcast, or, or not uh, the, the cell phone companies like Sprint and AT&T, T-Mobile, et cetera, have all been caught repeatedly over the past several years uh, collecting and selling real-time location data, not only to the government, but also to advertisers, to bounty hunters, to basically whoever would pay them for it. Um, and so it is a very real concern that the government can track us, not just based on uh, you know, the, the real-time location of our cell phones using GPS, um, but also with all the data that the apps that we use leak, you know, whether you're using Google Maps or anything else that has location services. But again, there's steps that you can take to prevent that. You can use a VPN on your phone. You can turn off location services. You can avoid apps that leak data. But you can't leave your house without your face. Um, and again, you know, this is sort of uh, leads to if this technology increases in accuracy, sort of a world where you can conduct real time, uh, 100% policing of every deviation from social norms. And that's what we're starting to see in places like China, where, you know, if you cross the street, not at a crosswalk, you can get fined using a facial recognition algorithm before you even get to the other side. Um, and so, I mean, the... the what makes this different from other forms of surveillance is the degree to which it's automated um, and the degree to which it basically can't be prevented unless you want to stay in your house all the time or wear a mask everywhere you go. Evan, you've also gotten, uh, you, you mentioned in your introductory remarks about uh, how the internet allowed you to connect with people uh, all over the world in, in different ways. I want to let you know that uh, one of our viewer listeners uh, from Saratoga Springs, New York, uh, wrote in. His name is also David. And David writes in to say, I hope Evan will perform in Saratoga, Saratoga Springs, New York at Kathalina. So uh, already, uh, you know, you're getting an opportunity to uh, and an invitation to come play. Cool. I'm, I'm definitely familiar with Kathalina. It's a cool, a cool venue. I've never played there myself. My good friend, Ann Feeney, who's a men mentor of mine, has played there many times. And uh, I definitely played at uh, Skidmore College, I think is in that town, right? So I've come through. So yeah, find me on the internet. You know, uh, I'm, I'm always happy to come play some shows and, and I do try to balance that with everything else I've got going on. So but, nice. yeah, glad to hear from folks. Evan, I'm looking at bandfacialrecognition.com and it's a fantastic website and we're going to get into uh, how our uh, audience can, can plug into that in just a moment. But I really appreciate how it breaks down the issue of why this mass deployment of automated facial recognition uh, is is such a terrible idea on so many levels that it's broken, it's invasive, it's unjust, and it's vulnerable. And I want to connect how this issue of mass facial recognition uh, relates to the broader police state that we live in, where uh, we have so many communities that are over-policed and, and mass incarceration as an ongoing injustice in this, uh, in this uh, country that we live in. And you mentioned or the, the website mentions that police officers across the United States routinely abuse confidential databases to spy on ex-partners, business partners, neighbors and journalists. 
And uh, can you help us understand more about that, uh, the way all this data that's constantly being collected, once it's in these databases, it is just so uh, ripe for exploitation and abuse uh, by the, the people who are supposed to be, quote, looking out for us. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And, you know, I mean, we've seen this at the highest levels of intelligence agencies like the NSA. Um, but you can imagine just how rampant it is and, you know, like a local police or a sheriff's force. Um, I mean, the reality is, look, cops are people, right? And they, you know, once you hand someone a tool that enables them to basically spy on anyone they want, um, it's a net, you know, you know, people talk about human nature, you know, <laughs> being, you know, kind of as the counterpoint to many of the progressive ideals that a lot of us espouse, but you know, this is like, this is human nature. You hand a bunch of cops the ability to monitor the entire population in real time using an algorithm. Um, and it's, you know, it's a foregone conclusion how it's going to turn out. Um, but to take that even to the next level, there's actually ways that racism and structural injustice are baked into this technology itself. So, you know, at currently, fa most facial recognition algorithms are deeply inaccurate when they're uh, surveilling people of color. Um, and, and, you know, there's a very simple reason for that, which is that most of the people that make them are white men. So most facial recognition algorithms work very well for cisgender white men and don't work as well on people with dark skin, on trans people, on women, on children, on basically anyone who's not a, you know, 30-year-old cis white man. Um, and so, but even if that issue is able to be addressed or fixed, you have to understand how this technology works. You're always comparing, you know, again, either a photo of a crime or real-time video surveillance against a database. And one of the ways this is used most frequently is to compare it against a mugshot database. So even if, let's say, in theory, uh, you know, the companies, the private companies that are profiting from and making this technology are able to address the issues of racial bias that are baked into their algorithms, it's still going to exacerbate existing forms of racial discrimination in our society because the police are going to be checking real-time crime footage against a mugshot database. And guess who's in that database? It's people of color who've been largely and historically over-policed um, and maybe in that database for no reason. Um, and then you've got an algorithm that's more likely to misidentify someone as a criminal just because of the color of their skin. So this is really sort of an automated uh, or like hyper sped up form of racial profiling. So it's taking what cops are already doing on the street and running it through a computer and making it 10 times faster and 10 times more ubiquitous. And, you know, so again, it's that has real harm. This isn't like a theoretical future dystopia Orwell novel. This is happening right now. They're using this in cities like Detroit, uh, you know, a city with 700,000 black people um, that are essentially um, being targeted and experimented on. Um, this is a quote I'm pulling from Tawana Petty, who's uh, an activist with the Detroit Community Technology Project, who's been working on this. And she says, you know, this is an experiment. They're experimenting on us to uh, an experiment in social control. And I think that's really what's so important for folks to know. We often think about surveillance as this trade-off between privacy and security. But really, mass government surveillance has never been shown statistically to make us safer. It's not about safety. It's about social control and maintaining the status quo. 
Thank Evan, you, Evan. You've convinced oh. me. So I'm going to ask you, uh, what can we do? And especially, yeah. what can viewers, listeners of A Green Way Forward do? Absolutely. So this is basically a three-prong campaign. There is several cities have already taken action to ban facial recognition. San Francisco, Somerville, Massachusetts, which is right down the street from me. Uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts just started a process of moving toward banning it. Uh, Oakland, California already did. There's also legislation that's beginning at the state level in Michigan and Massachusetts and California. Uh, and then there's action happening at the federal level. And this is actually an issue that's quite bipartisan. This is something where you've got AOC and Jim Jordan agree on this. Um, so there's bipartisan momentum growing between kind of the libertarian-minded Republicans in the House and progressive Democrats in the House um, who are actually going to able to come together calling for um, us to put a stop to this type of invasive government surveillance. And so the basic, most important thing that people can do if they're watching is to go to our site, banfacialrecognition.com, and we've set it up so that you can, with one form, contact your local city council, your mayor, your member of Congress, your senator, and your state legislators all at the same time uh, to tell them to pass legislation to ban this technology. And it's so important that we're calling for a ban because what we see is that the tech industry is basically taking a page out of the same playbook that they played on privacy, where they say, look, we want regulation. We can't wait for the government to regulate this technology. But that's because they want to sidestep the real debate. They want to skip to, okay, let's just assume that we're going to spread this everywhere. We're going to roll it out. Um, how should we do that? What limitations should be in place on us as we do that? They're trying to avoid the debate about whether this type of ubiquitous, invasive, and dangerous surveillance actually has any role at all in a free and open society. That's why you know we've got Microsoft and Amazon calling for regulation. They want a regulatory framework. They want rules of the road that tells them what they can and can't do, so they continue making money off of this technology. And what we really need to do is stop what we're doing right now so we can have a real and meaningful debate about what role this type of technology can have in our society, if any. Um, and that's why we're calling for a full ban on law enforcement and government use of facial recognition surveillance technology. Evan, as you know, we're broadcasting from the Facebook page of Dr. Jill Stein and a lot of uh, green organizers and candidates uh, are an audience for that page. And so we want to encourage green candidates who are running for office this year and who are planning runs for office next year to take a look at BanFacialRecognition.com to include this as part of your local office platforms, your, your state uh, legislature and other office platforms and to uh, include this, this issue, which connects to the, the four pillars of social justice, ecological wisdom, nonviolence, and grassroots democracy uh, as, uh, as something that the Greens are running on out there in the electoral arena. And uh, uh, David, uh, do you have anything to add here um, as we approach uh, 8.30? Yeah, the time just flew by, Evan. I want to say one thing very quickly, and that is, even while we were speaking, you convinced me. I went to banfacialrecognition.com. I literally filled out a form, mm -hmm. and it actually uh, 
uh, was one of the most easy setups that I've ever done and then ask if I would make a call. So I'm going to encourage the viewer listeners, go to bandfacialrecognition.com and sign up. It really is that easy. The second thing, Evan, because we are uh, at the end of our time, I'm going to invite you for any final thoughts before we close. Sure. Well, I just say, you know, if you're not like David and you're not convinced yet, um, go. I wrote an op-ed for BuzzFeed News about this. It's called Don't Regulate Facial Recognition, Ban It. Go search for it on the internet. It's easy to find. Uh, and check it out because it's really where we lay down the argument that this technology belongs on a very short list of technologies that the potential harm that it could cause to our society far outweighs any potential benefits. This is like nuclear or biological weapons. Um, it is not something that we can mess around with. It's not something that we can allow to proliferate. Um, and we have an opportunity to draw a line in the sand right now. It feels like in the age of the internet that we've already lost this battle and that there's just no privacy left. But I, you know, I'm here to tell you that it can get worse. Um, there's no guarantee that it gets better. Um, and so it's really up to all of us to speak out and to take action um, because you know this, this really is something that affects every single issue that we care about and our ability to organize and mobilize and hold our government accountable. Um, so I hope that folks will go to bandfacialrecognition.com and take action. Uh, and definitely feel free to reach out to me and find me on the internet. I'm, I'm on all, all the places. And, you know, I'll also let you know that, Michael, your, uh, your call uh, to action uh, already re- resulted in Hellman for County Board saying, will do. So, Banning facial recognition is going to be part of one of our viewer listeners' uh, platforms already, Evan. That's great. Great to hear. And yeah, if anyone's out there is, you know, in contact with your mayor or your city council, um, you know, a lot of cities are not doing this yet. So it's actually not a very big lift for them to say, you know what, we're going to ban this in our city. We're not going to allow the police to buy this type of technology with our tax dollars. Uh, And that makes a big difference. So we really have an opportunity here, and I hope that folks will take action. Evan, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, just let you know that I dropped the link to your BuzzFeed op-ed into the comments for this live stream, and we'll include it in the show notes for the podcast episode. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for having me on, guys. Let's keep in touch, and thanks for all your work. Thank you, Evan, and thank you for joining A Green Way Forward. I want to thank Michael O'Neill, who serves as both co-host and technical director. Most importantly, I want to thank you, the viewer listener. Uh, We're getting larger, stronger, and better organized because of you uh, and the work that you're actually doing. And with a hat tip to Gil Scott Heron, remember, the revolution may not be televised, but it can and will be brought to you over sources of non-corporately filtered news, information, and analysis. And I want to invite you to join us next week when our guest will be Melicia Figueroa. Mel and I toured the country doing Movement School for Revolutionaries two years ago, where we were predicting that fascism would be emerging quickly as capitalism entered a late stage. Mel has written a very provocative piece uh, uh, on the emerging fascism next stage. We're going to have her on the program to talk about it. Peace. A Green Way Forward is broadcast live on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time from Dr. Jill Stein's Facebook page. Subscribe to our podcast and e-newsletter at agreenwayforward.org to make sure that you never miss an episode. You can also find us and rate us on iTunes, with more podcast platforms being added each week. 
Our theme music is Retro Future Dirty by Kevin McLeod, whose fine music can be found at incomptech.com and is available for use under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is Michael O'Neill for David Cobb reminding you to please spread the word about A Green Way Forward and to send us your thoughtful questions and comments to agreenwayforward at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.